0: The new Super Beats Hard Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com, and save 15% with promo code DEAL.
1: Good morning, everyone. Earlier today, I spoke with the family of Brianna Taylor. This morning, they were informed that the Justice Department has charged four current and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal crimes related to Ms. Taylor's death. Those alleged crimes include civil rights offenses, unlawful conspiracies, unconstitutional use of force, and obstruction offenses. Earlier this month, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced charges against four officers involved in the death of Breonna Taylor. She was the young black woman killed by police in her home in March of 2020. At the time, Louisville police had a no-knock warrant for Taylor's apartment. When officers broke down the door to Ms. Taylor's apartment, that person, believing that intruders were breaking in, immediately fired one shot, hitting the first officer at the door. Two officers immediately fired a total of 22 shots into the apartment. Soon after the DOJ announced this, one of the officers charged pleaded guilty And after that news, Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother, felt a huge relief. She spoke with investigative reporter Jen
2: Abelson. She felt like a truck had been lifted off her chest and she could finally breathe again. That to see someone actually take responsibility for what happened that day felt like a real change at the same time it doesn't change the circumstances of what happened she felt like it validated though everything that she's believed from the beginning which is that police never should have been at brianna taylor's apartment they never should have broken down her door and that she should be alive today
1: two years after brianna taylor's death jen and our colleague nicole dunca have continued reporting on the case and on the dangers of no-knock warrants, this aggressive and intrusive law enforcement tool when police enter a home without warning. They started this reporting last year as part of the investigative podcast Broken Doors. And for Jen and Nicole, the movement in Taylor's case is a prime example of how far the conversation around no-knocks has moved just in the past few months, and how much further it still has to go. — From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 29th. This week, we won't have our usual news shows. Instead, we'll be running episodes of the Broken Doors podcast in our feed. To start that off, today we're having a new conversation with Jen and Nicole to hear about what's happened since the series was released and what the Justice Department is doing about Breonna Taylor's death. — So, Nicole and Jen, you both are the hosts of Broken Doors, this investigative podcast series about no-knock warrants. Um, And one of the reasons that you dove into this issue was because of the case of Breonna Taylor. And so, since you're reporting, there has actually been some developments in this case around her killing. Nicole, tell me a little bit about what has been happening.
3: So the Justice Department actually charged four officers who were either involved with the raid or the warrant with federal civil rights charges. And three of those officers pleaded not guilty, but significantly, one of them, Kelly Goodlett, did plead guilty to essentially falsifying information on the warrant.
1: Before I ask more about the charges, can you just explain why these charges are coming over two years after Brianna was killed, like why it took so long?
3: The Justice Department has been looking into this case for several years. So there has been a lot of pressure for federal civil rights charges to be pursued. And so that's what the Justice Department is looking into right now.
1: And so why did this one officer plead guilty? And why is this a big deal?
3: So Detective Goodlit wasn't actually there on the night of the raid. But what she has pleaded guilty to is... Lying on the warrant. So basically what she's saying is that they put information on the warrant that they knew to be false. And part of that was that officers knew that Jamarcus Glover, an ex-boyfriend of Brianna Taylor's, was receiving packages at her home and that they had checked with a postal inspector who basically confirmed that But since then, it's come out that, in fact, officers hadn't spoken to a postal inspector, so they did not have this information. And so that part of the warrant that led officers to this raid that resulted in her death was actually based on a faulty warrant. And that's important because we're at this point when it comes to no-knock warrants and search warrants in general that we're looking for more accountability because it can lead to tragedies such as this.
1: And so did this officer explain at all why there was this attempt to falsify this warrant or why there was a cover up if if anyone directed that or why that happened?
2: She has not spoken publicly and her attorney has not spoken publicly to explain her motivations. But we can see from the plea document that it appears that there was pressure for her to not speak out and to put this false information in the warrant and in the aftermath to also lie to investigators who were looking into it.
1: So what does this mean for the other officers, the ones who have pleaded not guilty in this case?
2: It appears that she's a cooperating witness. We don't have that formally, but it appears that she is going to be involved in helping prosecutors bring these charges and pursue the case against the other officers. We don't know the exact details of her sentencing. That's supposed to come up in November. But all signs point to the fact that she is cooperating with them. I don't believe that they have set a date yet for the trial. I spoke with um, Breonna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, and that's what she's expecting. I spoke with her a few hours after the officer did plead guilty, and it was really emotional for her. I mean, she talked about just crying in the courtroom itself, going into her car afterwards and crying, and she is hoping that she will see justice served.
1: You're you're mad all over
3: again. You're mad and you hurt. And to listen to someone to admit the, the guilt and what they did, and, and to know that what they did was wrong, to admit knowing that they lied, to to do, to do get in here and to just hear it, to have to, you know, now I'm going to have to relive this thing, sit in all these trials all over again, and, and there's nothing that any of them will ever be able to say to make me okay.
1: Do you think that this guilty plea is going to send a message to police officers and police departments around the country about how these kinds of circumstances are going to be viewed going forward?
2: I think the Department of Justice is hoping that it sends a message. It's still though so easy as we saw in our series to be able to, you know, obtain and execute these no-knock warrants. We are starting to see some changes around the country about a greater responsibility on behalf of officers who are requesting them and the judges as well. It was really interesting to note, too, in the pleading document that one of the detectives in this case, in Brianna Taylor's case, sort of knew the judge that they went to and particularly went to that judge because they expected there would be little scrutiny.
1: So are we supposed to look at the Brianna Taylor case as kind of a sign of what's going to happen more in the future? Or do you see this as pretty exceptional and, and pretty rare that... We're going to continue to usually not see officers charged in these kinds of circumstances.
2: I think this is a really defining moment for the Breonna Taylor case. It's really rare for the Department of Justice to step in to conduct this kind of investigation. They spent, you know, it looks like almost two years looking into this. And so they don't have the kind of resources to deploy this in every fatal no-knock raid, or where allegations of wrongdoing have happened. So I think this is a really remarkable situation where you have officers charged, where you have one of them actually pleading guilty, but so many families around the country who have experienced similar situations are hoping but unlikely to have the same kind of accountability from law enforcement and from the Department of Justice. And so it's really depends on each community and the willingness of local prosecutors and state officials to be able to take this issue on and to be willing to confront the tragedies that have happened in their community and look at the officers that they have to work with every day and see whether or not there's any responsibility and any kind of charges that need to be brought forward as a way to attempt to heal some of the the problems that have happened around the country.
1: After the break, I talk with Jen and Nicole about updates from the other fatal no-knock raids that they investigated in the Broken Doors podcast. And how no-knock warrant policies are changing in other cities and states. We'll be right back. So, Jen and Nicole, it has been about four months since you started releasing the Broken Doors investigation. Tell me, what has the reaction been so far?
2: Sure. Well, I think as soon as we started releasing the episodes, um, we started in Monroe County, Mississippi, I began hearing from, you know, lots of people from around the community, people who no longer live there but used to, who were really appreciative for the reporting we did, who have known for far too long about the problems within the sheriff's office there, the lack of accountability. We dive into a variety of allegations around corruption, misconduct, uh, how easy it was to get a no-knock warrant. And we heard from people who were victims of this and other kinds of police misconduct. And so we got into this really small rural community and it sounded like from everything that we heard that sort of it was the kind of thing that everyone was listening to and and talking about in the grocery stores and elsewhere and it was really gratifying you'll hear from benji edwards in the first episode and he just talked about how he felt really proud of being able to talk about his own experience and hopefully being able to make change particularly for black residents in monroe county In Monroe County, one of the cases we get into involved the death of a resident who was killed after police shot dozens of bullets into his trailer. And the family filed a wrongful death lawsuit there. And that case was supposed to be headed to trial in May of this year. And there was yet another delay. And so that's actually scheduled now for October. And I think we're hoping to go back there when that case finally does go to court.
1: So, Nicole, one of the areas of reporting that you focused on was on the issue of e-warrants, which is something that I had never heard of before your podcast series, Um, but the e-warrants are this technology that's used to allow police and judges to submit and approve warrants more quickly. And one of the places where you looked closely at this issue was in Louisiana. Can you remind me a little bit about that reporting and, and what you have learned since your investigation came out?
3: Yeah, so the case in Baton Rouge revolved around the fatal shooting of uh, Joseph Richardson, who was killed in his own motel room after officers said they sent someone in to buy some drugs from him. And what we found interesting about that case was the electronic warrant, like you're saying. And we wanted to know a little bit more of how quickly it allows officers actually to use no-knock warrants to be able to break down somebody's door. And so we were just struck by the idea that electronic warrants can make things happen so much quicker and also open up the possibility of a judge perhaps rubber stamping or barely looking at these kinds of warrants. And that's actually something that I know as more states, more jurisdictions are looking to electronic search warrants, we're going to see more of that, that they are thinking about ways to put guardrails around some of these warrants so that there is transparency, there is accountability for these search warrants, especially no-knock search warrants, which are incredibly intrusive and really do need to be scrutinized very carefully. Since we've released the series, Kentucky... The state where Breonna Taylor was killed has actually started piloting electronic search warrants. So they're starting Mm. right now in a small county
1: with the state police. Wait, I find that really surprising that at this moment when it feels like no-knock warrants are getting more scrutiny because of cases like Breonna Taylor's that police departments are still leaning more into electronic warrants or ways to make these warrants easier to dole out. I mean, that feels contradictory, that this is a practice that's actually growing.
3: That's a good point. And I actually did talk to the administrator of the state courts there, Lori Givens, about why they would be piloting electronic search warrants. She had actually listened to the series, and she felt like the findings in Broken Doors had affirmed a lot of things that they were thinking about while they were piloting this program. And part of the reason is that after Brianna Taylor's death, the state legislature passed a law that did put more restrictions on no-knock warrants. It essentially said it should only be used in cases where it is a violent offender. There is definitely a threat of violence or terrorism. It should generally be conducted with SWAT teams. So they were just making sure that there was a lot of information in the warrants to justify a no-knock search. And so she has said that with these electronic warrants, that there is a contrast to what happened in Baton Rouge. There are these legislative requirements that mean that officers need to be able to justify these search warrants and only in certain circumstances. So these warrants will not be signed off on if there's very sparse information about why it needs to be needed. And so she was saying that there are these kinds of guardrails that do exist within the court system that may not exist in other places.
2: There are communities that are increasingly turning towards this because electronic is the way that everything is going for all sorts of professions. And so it's a no-brainer that no-knock warrants are going to be submitted electronically. But I think communities are also seeing them not necessarily as an opportunity to just make things quicker and more efficient, but some places see it as a place where they can actually get more accountability, they can collect data, they can see how often officers are requesting these warrants, what kind of information they're putting in them, if they're digital, how often judges are rejecting them, and on what grounds. And Hmm. so I think it depends on really how you design the system. And that's what I think Kentucky is trying to be more thoughtful compared to maybe some other communities about what officers are required to put in there before a judge can actually sign off on it.
1: Interesting. I also want to talk briefly about St. Louis, um, where you dug into a multi-house raid where police killed a 63-year-old man named Don Clark and in the process only turned up a small amount of drugs. What has happened there since? And, and tell me about the repercussions of that case and your investigation into that case.
3: Yeah, so hearing from the family in that particular case has been really interesting. I mean, some of the people we talked to generally did not feel like anything would come of it. They didn't really know if anything would change. But after hearing what we put out, we're really thankful that we looked into it. And actually, the month after our episode was released, the St. Louis mayor, Tashara Jones, signed an executive order that banned no-knock warrants uh, by the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. And during that signing of the order... Don Clark's family was actually in the room because they had been working toward asking the mayor to ban those warrants because of what happened to Don Clark Sr. And so I've talked to Don Clark Jr., his son, and he was really thankful for the work that we did, partly because he thinks it did pressure the city to actually say that this is something that the St. Louis Police Department shouldn't be doing.
1: Where where are other places where you're seeing this reassessment of law enforcement's relationship with no-knock warrants and officials pushing back and saying, maybe this is a practice that we should not be doing.
3: In Austin, voters did decide that they wanted to ban no-knocks in their city. The police department said they will follow what the voters want, but they were also going to try and still use them in very extreme circumstances.
2: We're also seeing court officials step up and try to take on no-knock warrants. In Arizona, for example, court officials are discussing changes that would kind of create a checklist that judges and magistrates would have to sign off on before they would approve a no-knock warrant. And this includes really important requirements such as police having to identify the occupants in a house where they plan to search. I talked with one of the the justice who sort of led a task force in Arizona to study this issue, and he felt like cases like in Brianna Taylor's and a case, a no-knock warrant, fatal no-knock warrant that happened in Tucson, Arizona— Those would never have ended in fatal raids had officers been clear with judges about who lived inside these homes, that there were other people, that there were pets, that there were children, that there were elderly people. Because it's really important to consider the safety considerations of when police are, you know, going without warning to break down someone's door, what the ramifications are.
1: And do we know of any other no-knock warrants that have resulted in a fatality since May and since you all published your, your investigation?
2: So, we haven't seen any other fatalities come across our radar since this published in May, but I have been seeing still lawsuits and other accusations coming from families across the country who've accused police in their community of using no knock warrants in ways that were unlawful, whether it was targeting the wrong homes, using excessive force. And I think we're going to continue to see that as people realize that they can speak up about these problems and hopefully get some attention.
1: And then what about on the federal level? Like, is the federal government taking a closer look at how no-knock warrants are used nationwide or trying to step in to restrict the use of these kinds of warrants? In May, President Biden
3: signed an executive order that would have restricted the use of no-knock warrants by federal law enforcement agencies because those are the agencies that you know, basically, the president has purview over and can change the policies for. But they also were able to say that they were going to give funds that would incentivize state and local police departments to actually do similar reforms on the local level. And I think that's also going to be fairly important because, as we know, law enforcement in America is highly decentralized. And so it really is up to each department in a lot of cases to either change their policies if there's no state legislation that says that they're banning no-knocks or restricting no-knock
1: warrants. So it sounds like this is a moment where there are a lot of different police departments and law enforcement agencies around the country that are trying to rethink or renegotiate their relationship with these kinds of tactics and no-knock warrants and and other aggressive policing measures. What do you think that says about the state of policing right now or or the questions that police officers and police departments are asking themselves when they think about how they're supposed to do their job?
3: I think if you talk to law enforcement officers, you get a whole range of reactions about how the communities across America are supporting or not supporting police departments and law enforcement right now. And actually... You know, after we release this, you were hearing from some officers who are saying this is a really dangerous practice. We actually don't do this in our organization all that often because it has to be a very difficult situation for us to be able to justify this. But then you're also going to hear from law enforcement officers who say, OK, we do actually need this for these different situations. And maybe there's a way to restrict them, but we don't necessarily need to use them all that much.
2: I think there's been a wake up call Particularly around the Breonna Taylor case and some of the other fatalities that, you know, we examined that this is one of the most aggressive and intrusive forms of policing and can have the most egregious consequences where you kill someone in their own home without warning. And it really requires a lot more scrutiny at a higher level. So you're seeing police chiefs and sheriffs sort of being willing to take this on and acknowledge that there's a greater level of responsibility and obligation they have to the people they serve and to the officers who they oversee. Because as Nicole said, it's really dangerous for everyone involved. And so I think, you know, no-knocks is sort of this one interesting area of policing where, yes, there are officers who will maintain that this is, you know, a necessary tactic that they need But I think that there are a lot of people who are in favor of being able to defend themselves, defend their homes, have their guns, who also feel like this is a huge intrusion on their rights if if police officers are just going to have the ability to break down their door without warning. And so I think this is one of those rare issues where people, wherever they fall on the political spectrum, agree that there should be a more thoughtful approach to how police go about using no-knock warrants in this country.
1: Nicole and Jen, thank you so much for this.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Martine,
1: for having us. Jen Abelson and Nicole Dunka are investigative reporters for The Post. They are also the hosts of the Broken Doors podcast. This story was produced by Savvy Robinson. All this week, we're going to run episodes from Broken Doors. So you'll see those dropping in your feeds through Friday. All the episodes are also out now. So you can find them at WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors or on any app you use to listen. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Renny Svarnovsky and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.